don't always hear a preacher say that. Well, hey, good morning. My name's Andrew. If uh, you are new here, it'd be great to meet you after the service, or if you're newer here, um, and uh, yeah, if you're not, then it'd still be great to see you after the service. It's great to be back together in one service, and and I know that um, for, for some, you know, we look around and we go, oh, we're a little smaller because we're back in one service. And okay, let's just give it some time. Let's be prayerful. Um, God's doing what he's doing. And here we are. And it's great to be back in one service. Um, and yeah, here we go. So we're in this series on our seven shared member values. Uh, they're affirmation, grace, Humility, trust, submission, maturity, unity. And, and we're now in the back half of that. And while as the elders were discussing these, we weren't thinking they were necessarily a progression because uh, they all don't rest on one another and yet there's, there's connections to all of them. And so if we don't affirm one another in what's true of us in the scripture, then submission doesn't really work well. Okay, if we don't affirm one another in what's true of us in the scriptures, grace, showing each other grace, doesn't really work well. If we don't give each other grace, trust doesn't work well. If we don't trust each other, we're never going to grow in maturity. And so there are these interrelated, interconnected values. But there is some progression in them because I do believe that we have to understand submission in order to get to maturity and unity. Now, submission, where we're at, uh, where we've been in August, where we'll be this week and next week, and then on Family Fellowship Sunday in August, we're going to be praying about this. this. This idea of submission really has become inseparable from the, the thought of men and women in the church and their roles in the church. Just whenever you say submission in the church, those ideas begin coming to mind. You just can't pull it apart. And I thought, how do we pull it apart? And I went, I'm not even going to try. So we're going to press into that a little bit more. So here's where we've been. Uh, August 1st, two weeks ago, uh, Drew pointed us, Drew Barnes, he was preaching. He pointed us to this beautiful picture of submission in Jesus Christ who in the form of God did not count equality with God something to be clung to, something to be grasped. He was in the form of God because he is God. He is equal with God because he is God. He just didn't cling to that. But rather he humbled himself and submitted to the, the, the plan and purpose of the triune God and he ordered his life under God. All right, we, 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 we saw that beautiful picture, and Paul in Philippians 2, and then Drew, as he unpacked Philippians 2, calls us to have that same attitude. That's the mind that we're supposed to have as we come into this relationship with Christ and with one another and how we live it out in the world. So, so then I came up last week, and I'm sorry if last week was confusing. I was just trying to get us in a little bit further and try to, try to just tell you where I'm coming from. So I just made three observations last week. My three observations were that both sides of this popular debate on submission within the church, hierarchy and equality, those are the two sides. You might hear it complementarianism or egalitarianism. Okay, I'm just going to stick with the terms hierarchy and equality. To me, they are inadequate to really get at what does submission mean. They just have shortcomings in my mind. Three of those are they tend to read into Scripture. Both sides tend to read into Scripture from my perspective. Both sides, when they're pushed to the extreme, threaten the integrity of the Trinity. And neither side has been effective in leading God's people to a greater degree of unity around this issue. They've just become more divisive. And and so I struggle to go, I'm in this camp or I'm in that camp. And I'm going to say some things today that will probably offend both camps. Okay, here's my request. Here is my plea with you. And I made this plea way back when we were in affirmation. 
okay? It holds true today because I'm going to say some things that you go, really? And I understand that, and I can appreciate that because there are people far, far smarter than me and more well-educated than I am that have weighed in on the issue. So I'm out here kind of on the end of the plank going, ha, 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 I know I'm on shaky ground here, not because I think I'm unbiblical, but because I think I'm unpopular. Okay, I think I'm biblical. And if Wayne Grudem or John Piper or anybody from the other side wants to sit down and talk with me about that, I'm happy to do that. And that's what I would request of you. If you hear things today that you don't agree with, that are contrary to where you're coming at in this conversation, that is okay. Here's what I ask. Don't give me a book. Okay, it's happened a lot, and I've read them. Don't send me an article. It's happened a lot, and I've read them. Don't send me a video of a sermon or audio of a sermon of your favorite preacher on this topic. Don't do it. I've been sent them, and I've watched them or listened to them. But here's what I would request. Can we please pull out our Bibles, sit down over coffee or lunch or just over a table somewhere, and I'll make time to do this. I will make time to do this. It might be three in the morning, but let's do this. And let's open up the Bible and have a robust conversation about what it means. Now, I know it's so hard to unhook ourselves from an argument that has been raging for generations, for millennia even. But I'm so convinced that a proper understanding of submission has two radical implications on our Christian life. It directly impacts our testimony, and it directly impacts our maturity. Okay, that, that was all to say I have problems with both sides. All right, submission then, <clears throat> this was my second observation last week, submission then is best understood, in my opinion looking at the metaphor of body and head, head and body. We're going to get into that a little bit more today. And then whatever our definition of submission, it must be applied consistently. So we're really good at saying submission applies here, and yet we kind of go, but not so much here. Okay, we just have to be consistent, okay? If it's in the scriptures and we can understand it, then we just have to go, okay, we have to apply this idea consistently. So when the same word for submission is applied to marriage and government and the church and one another, we have to go, okay, we have to wrestle this through so that we can apply this in every area that God has prescribed it to be applied consistently. Okay, that was last week. You're like, oh man, just get into this week already. Then I offered this definition of submission. This is a working definition. If you want to push on some of this, that's fine. We're just going to go back to Scripture and go, okay, how can we better define the term? Because at the end of the day, at the end of this sermon, my application is just a bunch of questions, not answers. Because I believe that working out submission has purpose in our lives. Christ has purpose for us to actually work at this and to just give you answers, which, by the way, I don't have. I'm working it out. It short circuits the process of sanctification. But I believe that this issue of submission is at the core of sanctification. And so if we don't wrestle with this, if we don't ask the questions and then come to Scripture as individuals, as couples, as families, as a church, as the church, if we're not asking those questions and coming to the Scriptures, we miss the point and we miss the impact that it has on our lives, which is testimony and maturity. All right, so here was the definition. A willing, consistent, and active ordering of our life under another. In order to lift up according to the purpose and plan of God for his eternal glory. All right, I'll just say right now, if you want to refer back to that and you um, weren't able to uh, write it down, you can go to our Faith Life app, you can go to the bulletin in the Faith Life app or on our website, and all of my slides are there. 
So you can check back in throughout the week. That will be helpful if you don't have a way to take notes when I start inviting you to ask a bunch of questions, okay? So I just want to point, you, point that out. It's available. All right, this morning in our short time together, and I emphasize short because I realize the shortness of our time. I want to try to do three things, and it's probably a pretty big ask. I want to highlight two benefits of submission in the context of Ephesians 4 to 6, that being maturity and testimony. Okay, I I, I want to uh, really, first off, consider further the metaphor of head and body in the context of Ephesians and 1 Corinthians 11. Sorry, in my notes they're reversed. The slide is right. Then I want to highlight two benefits of submission or motivations or impacts or whatever word you want to put in there from Ephesians 4 to 6. And then I want to offer application for marriage, family, workplace, and government directly related to testimony. And I think it's important to look at testimony first so that we have some impetus behind us as we then look at maturity next week. So next week, we'll kind of back up, do this all again through a couple of different passages, but our application will be directly applied to maturity. So let let me um, just say again, if I say anything this morning that you go, "I, I don't think that's right, that's okay. Okay, that's okay. We're working it out. Let's just open the Bible and talk about it. Don't talk to one another about it unless you have your Bibles open. But if you say, hey, I have a problem with Andrew, and you're talking about that with somebody else, that's a problem. So if you have a problem with something that I said this morning, would you please come to me with Bibles open? Let's have a robust conversation. Okay, I love doing that. Love doing it. All right, so let's just jump in. Um, so Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. So this idea of submission runs all the way through the book of Ephesians. That's why we're going to look at it in more detail toward the end of the message. But I want to set up that Ephesians 1 starts this issue. Okay, It opens up this topic and submission becomes a primary theme throughout the book of Ephesians. Why do I say that? Well, because here's what we hear right at the end. It says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him overhead, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, that should do two things in your mind right now. It should kind of stir up what Drew was talking about in Philippians 2. Because that, that was the story. And then uh, we jumped to passages last week where we got into the revelation. And first, or not revelation, we did get into revelation, but into the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15. And so this passage kind of brings those two together to say that Christ submitted himself to the Lord. And he had purpose in doing that. If you want to read through Ephesians 1, which in the church reading plan we did just a few days ago, um, it, it's such an incredible passage about who we are in Christ. That was Christ's motivation, to do some amazing things for you and in your life and then through you. But Christ, he did all these things. He laid down his life. He has bestowed upon us every spiritual blessing so that God uh, put everything under his feet. God exalted him as head over all things and gave him as head to the church which is the fullness of his body. So this passage should be stirring up thoughts about Philippians 2 and maybe 1 Corinthians 15, and then it should remind you that we have a metaphor here of head and body. The head is Christ here. The body is the church. Now that has some other implications, but can we try to unpack that metaphor a little bit further? So now... The other place in the New Testament that this metaphor makes a prominent appearance is in 1 Corinthians 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to 1 Corinthians 11. I don't have all of the verses on screen, but I have many of the verses on screen that we'll look at this morning. So I said last week, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the passage I used last week, was one of those passages I've never really wanted to preach on. Here's another one. Okay, you just look at the bold heading and you go head coverings. Uh, 
I brought some towels. Just, no, just kidding. Just kidding. But even that bold heading begins to stir some things in us as men and women. And, and we've wrestled with how to apply this for millennia. We've wrestled with how to read this for millennia. So I just want to read these two verses. It starts in verse 2 because I, that's where most scholars believe the paragraph starts. Even though there's not really paragraphs in Greek, that's where the flow of thought begins. It's not in verse 1, it's in verse 2, and I agree with that. And here's what these two verses say. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I, as, as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand, okay, I'm going to read from a different translation. This is the CSB on screen. We typically use the ESV, but I think it makes a horrible mistake here in its translation. So I'm going to read this again. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of every woman. And God is the head of Christ. Okay, you can already start to see where we get into some trouble here. Where, where we get into questions that we go, what does this mean? And it's so much easier to go, can we just jump to chapter 12? No, we can't yet. Though I think chapter 12 plays a part in this. Now he says, I, I, I commend you, I praise you because you're remembering me and everything. Well, what does that mean? Well, if we jump back to the verses just before this, if we look back at chapter 10, verse 31, Paul says, so whatever you eat, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, this is a summary statement of several things that he's been teaching them, um, really beginning in chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and then he comes to the end and he goes, okay, I've presented some things to you, but in, you know, whether you're eating or drinking, because he's talked about those things, or in whatever you do, it's a blanket statement, do all for the glory of God. Okay, that's our motivation. We want to glorify God. We want to bring glory to God. So that's in our definition of submission. Paul says, give no offense. Okay, don't offend anybody as you're doing these things. Consider others because there's a purpose in this. But what I want you to do is I want you to imitate me because my goal is to live my life in such a way that if people see my life, they come to Jesus. That's called a testimony. Okay, our lives and our words bear testimony to the goodness and kindness, the patience and love, the graciousness of our God. The character of God is on display through how we live our lives, in what we say, in how we do that together. And Paul just goes, hey, that's my goal. That's the burden that God has laid on my heart. That's what he's called me to, not as just an apostle, but as a believer in Jesus Christ. I am supposed to bear witness, to give testimony, so that many would be saved. He goes, and you know what? You're doing pretty well in that. I want to just praise you in that. And then he says, verse 3, but I want you to know, okay, I want you to know something. In the ESV, it says understand. In the Greek, it really means to see. I want you to see something. So what he's saying is, as you seek to imitate me, your imitation of me as I imitate Christ is going to be helped if you can see something. All right, I pause just for a moment. We'll interrupt this theological discussion for a simple lesson on anatomy. The human body is made up of a head and a body. A head and a body. Do me a favor. Would you put one hand on your head? And, and we're just going to say that the tummy represents the body today, okay? There's much more to our body, but um, if you have one hand on your head, the other hand on your belly, can you pat your head and rub your belly? 
I'm not even going to try. Good job, good job. Um, and you should appreciate that I said pat your head because rub your head messes up your hair. Okay, we have this picture, and Paul says, your imitation of me as I imitate Christ will be helped if you can see, if you can come to this understanding by seeing a metaphor of head and body. He doesn't try to define head and body. There is no place in Scripture that says, husbands, lead your wives. No, no place. So head and lead are not synonymous. But there is an important lesson to learn about headship. Okay, so we have head and we have body. But to try to see that metaphor in the midst of this debate that's raged for thousands of years is so challenging because we instantly want to go, well, head is the boss. That's the hierarchy side. Or head is the source. That's the equality side. Head is the boss. That's who's in charge. That's authority. That's hierarchy. And you submit because somebody's in charge. But that's defeating the purpose of the metaphor. Or head is source. It's the uh, place where everything emanates from. And so they try to lay that on top of Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of every woman, God is the head of Christ, and it begins to break down if you press it too hard. So I believe that Paul's just saying, hey, consider this picture. Just just for what it's worth, a head and a body. That's why I think in chapter 12, he goes on to talk about the body and its many members and how we as believers together are the body of Christ. He doesn't shift the metaphor. He's not trying to make it mean something else. The body in chapter 12 is the body because he's given us a metaphor, head and body. But we want to change what he's saying about head because we want the boss, Head is not synonymous with boss. Head is the head. Body is not synonymous with helper or servant or subservient. It's the body. So let's get the picture. Now, there are implications to that, and I don't want to minimize that. I just want us to get the picture. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, get the picture. So what do we know about a head and a body, just physically? If you separate the two, that's bad news. Okay, if you decapitate a body, if you take the head off the body, that's bad news. If you take the body off the head, that's bad news, right? So Paul wants us to see that there's this inseparable relationship between head and body. The other thing I think that is um, really clear in this metaphor is that there is an interdependence. Like, there's connections here that, like, you can't live without. If some of these connections aren't working right, there are problems. And so there's this interdependence between head and body that makes the the whole thing thrive. And so if we disconnect it, that's bad. But if we also don't realize the interconnectedness, that's bad too. And so we have this relationship that is inseparable and interconnected. Dependent. There's dependence on one another. That's what I think Paul wants us to see. So when we go, okay, Christ is the head of every man. I don't think he's talking about mankind. I think he's talking about males. Okay, Christ is the head of every man. Well, then, then, then what do we see in that? Well, there's this inseparable, interdependent relationship. Men, you cannot thrive without Christ. Men, you cannot be men without Christ. If if you try to be manly by whatever definition you use, and you do that without Jesus, it's like cutting off your head. You cannot do it. It doesn't work. Now he goes to say, men are the head of women. And we want to go, see, that means men are the boss. 
But that's not what he's saying. He's just given us a picture. So what does the picture say? Man, men and women, there is this inseparable, interdependent connection between us. He goes on later in the text to say, hey, woman was made from man, but guess what? Men come from women now. And if you're like, what? Just think babies, okay? Every man in this room has a mother. And she's a woman. There's this inseparable, interdependent relationship. And that's all Paul's trying to say here. But we want to press into that so much more. So he goes, hey, if you just want to just see how that plays out, God is the head of Christ. We looked at that last week. What does that mean? That Jesus, even though he was God, even though he had all the privileges and rights of God, even though he had equality with God, he said, that's not mine to hang on to. I will willingly order my life in order to lift up the, the triune God according to the purposes and plans of God for his glory. That's what Jesus said. He didn't say, I'm less than the Father. He didn't say, God the Father is the boss. He said, I will willingly order my life, consistently, actively order my life. So he lived his life perfectly ordered in line with the purpose and plan of God in order to bring him glory. Well, then then what did we say the head did last week? The head then bends over and pulls up the body because that's what God did to Christ. So last week we looked at how God put everything under his feet, and then Paul's quick to say, accept himself. But then he exalts him to the highest place, to his right hand, which means he says, hey, come sit on my throne with me. And then at the very end of last week, we said, hey, the Spirit indwelling us, where is the Spirit in that? Oh, on the throne in Revelation with all believers, with Christ, with God the Father. And so we've been exalted to that very place. Riley, I'm going to ask you to skip ahead to slide 13 because it'll fit better here. I love it that my son's running slides and I can just say, do that. It's harder with Gene Hoffman to go, hey, Gene. Okay. All right. um, Exalt and exalt is like me saying dawn and dawn. Okay. Okay. but it makes a difference because when I'm saying Don, meaning Don Coons, and I shouldn't just plug my nose, Don, um, that's a man, okay? And when I say Don, I'm speaking about Don Dugo, and that's a woman. And so there's a big difference there, okay? So when I say exalt this morning, I'm using the A, not the U. There's an interesting thing about the word exalt throughout Scripture. It's what men do to each other or what God does to man. You go, wait a second, in the Psalms we get that the Lord is exalted. Yeah, it's what God does to Christ. It is this action to raise to a place of honor. And what we see the head doing for the body is consistently raising the body to a place of honor. While at the same time, the body is lifting up the head according to the purpose and plans of God for God's glory. It's a picture of head and body. And when he plays it out to say God is the head of Christ, now we begin to start having some understanding about the picture. So when it says Christ is the head of every man, that does not mean that Christ is not the head of every woman. Okay, we'll get back there next week when we look at the church. But he's saying, men, if you want to pursue Jesus, if you want to pursue manliness, if you want to pursue all that God has for you, you cannot do that without Christ. But guess what? Christ is ready to exalt you. Christ is ready to lift you up, men. If you follow him, he will lift you up. Now, just look at this as well. If you think about those, I I should have stacked them on the screen. If you think about Christ and men and God in that order, in the scriptures, what you'll realize is there's only masculine characters on top. 
and there's feminine characters on the bottom when we in, inject women. So um, when we say, okay, God is the head of Christ, we're not saying that Christ is a woman, but there's something about a feminine characteristic there. And I would, I would say it could be argued from 1 Peter 3 that that is a place of vulnerability. So being head is a place of strength or less vulnerability, and being body is a place of greater vulnerability. So God the Father is in a place of less vulnerability than Christ. Is that true? Who was nailed to the cross? Christ. Okay, Christ is in a place of lesser vulnerability, and men, you're in a place of greater vulnerability, okay? Because you're not the Son of God. You're a child of God, but you're not God the Son. And that makes you more vulnerable. Men, we are in a place of lesser vulnerability. This isn't strength or authority, this is vulnerability. Physically, we are less vulnerable than women. Okay, that is not an offensive statement to you women. It really is a fact. But we have to realize in this place of being less vulnerable and more vulnerable, there is this inseparable, interconnected, interdependent relationship where men, I think the onus is on us, to raise women to a place of honor. Okay, so if you look through that lens, you're going to read 1 Corinthians 11 a little bit different. And I just want to make a couple of observations about 1 Corinthians 11 because it's a hot passage in this debate. Now, Riley, we can go back to slide 9. Here's a couple observations about 1 Corinthians 11. If ever Paul was going to say women should be limited in their function in the church, it's in this passage. But if you look at it, both men and women are praying and prophesying, and he does not, he does not condemn that. If there's ever a passage where he wants to go, I want to be real clear, women shouldn't do this in the church. This is the passage he should do that in because he's making the direct comparison. So what is this passage saying? I believe there are some cultural interpretations and they're compelling. But I think this is about the beautiful distinctions between maleness and femaleness. God created humankind male and female. Okay, so I, I just want to be clear. That's where we stand as a church. There is male and there is female. Period. And if there's confusion about that in your life, we would love to lovingly, compassionately walk with you in that. But we believe that God created humankind male and female. And there are important, vital distinctions in that because in, in that inseparable, interdependent relationship, according to God's purpose and plan, His wisdom for all ages, He said, as those things come together, that's how people are really going to see my glory and my goodness and my character. So we better be able to tell them apart. That's what I think he's saying in this passage. As you come into a joint congregation and you are praying and prophesying together, men and women, we should know who's a man and who's a woman. And as I look out on you today, that's pretty easy to tell. Okay? That, those lines are getting blurred in our culture, though. So it's not surprising to think that maybe those lines were getting blurred in their culture. But there's something beautiful in those distinctions and in how they come together to glorify God. 
then, then I just ask, okay, it, this passage for me, for me, 1 Corinthians 11, hinges on the answer to a question in verse 13. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman, ESV translates it wife, it should be consistently woman through the passage, for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? He just said before that in verse 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. What I believe he's saying is, I have redeemed women just like I redeemed men. I laid down my life for women just like I laid down my life for men, and they have equal access to God the Father. So when he asks, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered, I think, based on the picture that I see, based on my understanding of the gospel, yes, women pray to God, head covered or not. Yes, it's proper for them to pray with their head uncovered. But it's a big difference if we say no. Right? Right? If we say women cannot pray to God unless they cover their head, that better be true in your home because you've got to live this out consistently. That better be true across the board. And I think what that does is it minimizes the work of Christ on behalf of women who he loves and he has redeemed by laying down his life. Now, there are implications to head and body for men and women. So let's get there. Ephesians 5, back to Ephesians 5. It's interesting that in Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2, Paul starts this way. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Be an imitator of God. He says, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then he comes back to the Ephesians and he goes, hey, realize who you are in Christ. Realize all that Christ has given you, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Realize who you've become as the church. And then realize that you can imitate God. Follow God. Do what God does. Walk like God. Now that doesn't make us God. Let's be clear. But we can act like God. We can think like God because we have God's Spirit in us. He says, be imitators. This section in chapter 5, I I believe, is the pivot point between chapter 4 and the back half of 5 and the first half of 6. The chapter markers are really unhelpful in Ephesians. So in chapter 4, what we get is that we're supposed to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're supposed to walk. But then he changes that word throughout the rest of the chapter to grow or to become. And so he's saying, hey, you need to grow up. You need to mature. That's what healthy things do. They grow up, they mature. And and then the pivot is you need to walk. And now he changes his focus from maturity to you need to walk in a way that if people see you walking out your faith, they're going to go, wow, Jesus must be awesome. So it is maturity and testimony. And the key verse that it hinges on is verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This idea of submission has dramatic impacts on maturity and testimony. As we come to understand this dynamic of head and body, this picture that we've been given of submission, as we come to understand that picture, 
and then apply it in our lives, we will see maturity rise and testimony go forth. And so Paul says, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate God because there's a lot at stake. Your sanctification, your maturity, and the testimony, many souls. So take this seriously. Work it out. Wrestle with the questions. So then we jump into the second half of chapter 5, and it starts, Wives, submit. Except it doesn't say that in the Greek. Okay, we have to borrow that verb from verse 21. There's no verb in the Greek in 22. So it it just says, uh, Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's what it says. Well, we, we know, and I think it's fair to put the word submit in there. Okay, but we, we have to think of it in the context that it's in, not just pick it up right at 22 and go, see, wives, you just need to submit to your husbands. Sit down, be quiet, do what they say. One, that's not what submission is. And two, that's not what the text says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Now we get into it. The husband is the head. I could just say, because God said so. But I think it's, it's more important than that. Yes, creation order points to this. Yes, there are some ideas around, biblical ideas around leadership and provision and protection that point to this, but they are a means to an end, not the end in themselves. So I will consistently encourage you men to be heads more than I will encourage you to be leaders or protectors or providers. Because while being head may require leadership and it may require protection and it may require provision, those are means to an end, not an end in themselves. And I think so much of the the discussion, the debate, just makes those the end. Hey, if you're a leader, if you're a protector, if you're a provider, you're a man. Cool. That's what head means. No, it doesn't. There's too many questions like, how good of a leader do you need to be? How how much protection do you need to provide? How much provision do you need to provide? And I tell, tell you what, there's times in my life that I go, I don't measure up. And so then we go, well, then you have a problem. Well, maybe not. Paul knew wealth and he knew poverty. And he was content in both. Was he a perfect protector, provider, leader? He never even got married. What does that say? How do we answer these questions? I go, we don't need to. Because it's about head and body. It's about the picture. Husband is head. I believe largely because God in his infinite wisdom from before time began said, you know how we will best be displayed. The triune God, the the king of all the universe, do you know how we will best be displayed? Male and female. And if if husbands are heads of their home. I'm sorry, I'm going to rephrase that because that's not what the text said. If husbands are heads of their wives. Because you can't be one body with your home. It doesn't work out. Head of the wife, the body. That's the metaphor that is emphasized in this text. So, here's some questions. Not answers, questions. I just invite you, husbands and wives, I I, I long for you to have conversations around these questions. And they can't all happen today. They can't all happen this week. They can't all happen maybe even this month. So you're going to need to hang on to these. You're going to need to come back to these. And I will try to remind you of them. Husbands and wives, will you have a conversation around these questions? Husband, I want you to ask this. How can I better exalt you, my wife, as a person and child of God? How can I best exalt you? How can I best raise you to a place of honor? How can I best hold you up and go, look at my body? which is where Paul goes in Ephesians 5. Like, what man doesn't take care of his body? What man's not like, I want to be chiseled. Now, you know, cookies get in the way, but... 
Will you exalt your wife? Will you raise her to a place of honor? Will you see her as a person and as a redeemed child of God, as a saint, as a priest, as a dearly loved adopted child, as one who is seated on that throne in heaven with you, with the Spirit, with Christ, with God? Will you see that? And will you humbly ask your wife, hey, how can I do that better? Wives, please, 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 prayerfully come at that question and don't go, well, it's about time. It's about time you ask this. Don't go, yeah, I've been meaning to talk about that for quite some time. Don't go, I am hurt and angry and Okay, don't do those things. Prayerfully ask the Spirit to help you respond to that question. And let's start working on it. Let's start living this out. Let's start working out our submission. All right. Then wives, you can ask your husband a question too. How can I better order my life under your headship in order to lift you up? That's what submission means, okay? To order your life under. Husband, How can I do that better? And here's why I can't give you a prescription. Because for all of you, for all married couples, that's going to be a little bit different. So we just need to have the conversation. And it probably needs to be an ongoing conversation. How can I better order my life? That doesn't mean that you give up your will. Jesus did not give up his will. He submitted his will to the Father. He prays in the garden. Hey, here's my will. But not, my, but not my will, but your will. He, he doesn't go, I'm chucking my will out the window. He just goes, I'm going to order my will to the Father. That doesn't make you less than, wives. It's just the best way that you're going to give testimony to God. So then the question for together What do we want our children, extended family, friends, neighbors, and others to know about our church and Christ, and how do we model that in our marriage? What Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 5 is, there's this mystery going on, okay? It's already mysterious enough to understand just the anatomy of head and body. How does that work? I don't know. Okay, and then we take that metaphor and we lay it on top of marriage, and we go, husband is head, wife is body. How does that work? I don't know. Paul says it's a mystery. But there's one more component to this mystery. How head and body in marriage, husband and wife, relate to one another is going to be a picture of how Christ relates to his church because Christ is the head of the church and the church is the body. I'll just point out, I'll do this more next week, that means we're all the body. There are no heads here. Jesus Christ is the head, period. So what is it that you would want those around you, your children, your extended family, your friends, your neighbors, others, to know about our church? Married people. How you live out your married life affects our reputation as a church. Okay, so if we're hoping to pack this place If we're hoping to see many souls get saved, if we're hoping that God would add to our number day after day after day, those who are getting saved, our marriages matter. So what would you hope that your children and your extended family and your friends and your neighbors and others actually know about the church and about Jesus and how he relates to his church and then how do you play that out in your marriage? That takes work but it's well worth it because we have a testimony. All right, Paul goes on to talk to children. Verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, I, I want you to see a shift here because there's not a head here. There's not a body here. Paul doesn't push the metaphor farther than it can go. Okay, he says, head and body, that goes to marriage because, guess what? You're one flesh, okay? You have this inseparable, interdependent relationship. That's what happens when you get married. 
That's why divorce is so awful, because it just rips that apart. But the word obey is a similar word. It's a related word to submit. So I go, all right, we've learned something from the metaphor, hopefully, that we can now apply to other relationships in our lives. So as God prescribes these relationships, hey, children, obey your parents, honor them, submit to them. Now we know what this looks like. Okay, there's some kind of connection between children and parents that bears witness, that gives testimony to those outside the church. Man, if we want to see God add to our number day after day after day, those who are getting saved, our families matter. Our kids matter. We have some of the most beautiful children in our church. And they matter. No matter what age they are, they matter. They have a testimony for Jesus Christ that reflects on our church, that reflects on our families, that reflects on the glory of God. So first, let me put in a shameless plug for children's ministry. We're going to three rooms in September because we have that many kids. That means we need eight people per Sunday to lovingly minister to these precious, beautiful children. That means we need 24 people a month. Three weeks, then we get a family fellowship Sunday. We keep the kids in with us. Everybody gets a break. And we've gone to one service, which means anybody who's working in children's ministry doesn't come to the service. Great, we have a live stream you can watch at home. That doesn't make a difference, okay? It does. It's nice. But it's not the same. So we go, we don't want anybody to be working more than one week a month. And ideally, we don't want anybody in children's ministry more than one week a quarter. And guess what? We have enough people in our church that if we all just said, I'll take a week, we could do that. I'll serve our kids. And I know some of you are serving in other places, and I thank you for that. But I bet even in that service, there's one Sunday, a quarter, that you could do. Judah Godin and I, he's my buddy. I don't know if he still knows that or not, but he's my buddy. I walked out into the hallway outside of Fellowship Hall yesterday. Our Arlene Godin's funeral was there, and I saw three Godin kids go out the door and two Godin kids come back in. And I did the math and went, hmm, somebody's still out there by himself doing who knows what. And so I peek around the corner, and Ju- Judah's standing over by the corner of the kitchen, and he has this look on his face. I said, Judah, what's going on, man? And he goes, I had a choice right then and there. So I went, and we stood there for a second, eye to eye. Intensity grew, and he took another step. So I took another step. And pretty soon we're like this, and we're, and he's fighting a smile. And he goes, and so I went, and then he goes, and I went, oh boy, but then I went, and Judah smiled. We have amazing kids. Esther runs down the hall. Friday night, we're having a visitation. She's fascinated by Grandma Goding, who's dead, by the way in a casket. She asks if she can go see her again. But she runs down the hall, past the office. Aaron and I are sitting there, and I go, hi, Esther. She goes, hey! (laughs) Oh, we have amazing kids. Parents, you have an incredible responsibility. But children, here's the word for you. Obey your parents. Why? Not because they said so. Hear this, kids. Whatever age you are, if you're still living at home, hear this. You obey your parents 
Because it gives a testimony to Jesus Christ. It gives a testimony to the goodness of God. It gives a testimony to the life-changing realities of the gospel. Obey your parents, not because they said so. Not because they're in authority. But because it reflects on Jesus. And fathers, don't provoke them to anger. I hate that it says dads and not moms. Because I'm a dad, but I know that I do that. I know that I've done that. I know that I've made my kids mad in how I've related to them, and it breaks my heart. Because there's a testimony at stake. And if they can come to a point where they will willingly and consistently and actively order their lives under my leadership, it's a glorious testimony. So dads, don't frustrate your kids. And it happens more with us than with moms. It just does, okay? Parents, will you see this as a joint mission? There is not a head of your home other than Jesus Christ. And I know that's tricky ground, okay? But head and body is this interconnected, interdependent relationship that only applies in marriage. We have to get out of the metaphor. So dads, you can be great, godly dads. And moms, you can be great, godly moms. But you are a team. So get on the same page. Because there's a testimony at stake. Because how your family plays itself out in the world bears witness to the character and the goodness of God. And many need to come to Jesus. And they will through your testimony of your family. And I've totally forgotten the clock, so I hope you have too. Here's the questions for families. Children, Would you ask your parents, and I know there has to be some age here, some understanding, so you older kids, especially the ones I see on Wednesday night, I'm going to ask you about this on Wednesday night. Would you ask your parents, how can I better honor you, mom and dad, so that, I should have said this, so that we have a stronger testimony for Jesus Christ? How can I better order my life, mom and dad, so that we together can have a better testimony, a stronger testimony for Jesus Christ? Ask that of your parents, please. Fathers, sit down with your kids. There were great stories about Arlene Godin yesterday and how her dad would sing to her songs like, My Redeemer Lives, or I'll sing of my Redeemer, I'll sing of my Redeemer, after he would discipline her. And when I first heard that story, I said, that's a little weird. But then we sang the song, and the words of that song are so instructive of the gospel that Jesus loves us even when we do wrong. Dads, would you sit down with your kids? Would you lovingly embrace them? And would you ask them, hey, in what ways do I frustrate you? I've done this with my kids and it's hard and I have to apologize and I have to do it again. But in what ways have I provoked you? In what ways have I frustrated you? In what ways have I made it hard for you to obey me? And then listen to them and learn and work at this. Parents together, how can we better work as one flesh to ensure biblical flourishing in our home as a testimony to others around us? Parents ask that question often. How can we be more on the same page, mom and dad, so that the impact of our family is multiplied? If we want to see day after day after day God adding to our numbers, Marriage matters and our families matter. He goes on to talk about the workplace and I'm just going to blow through these. How many of you have a job? Okay. Those of you who are retired, whoo! Great. You know what you could do? You retired people, you can help us that still have jobs to coach us up in this. 
Many of our older people in this church have done this so well. They've engaged in the workplace in ways that have borne a testimony of Jesus Christ. You retired people who did that well, would you help us, please? Older men, would you talk to younger men to say, hey, how's work going? How could I help you? I'm retired. I have time on my hand. Could I coach you? Older women with younger women, would you just sit down with each other and go, how could I help you? How can I nurture you in this as you go out and you're bearing a testimony, whether in your home or in the workplace, how can I help you? But if you're a manager or an employee and if you have a job, you're one of those two things. Then here's the questions. As a manager, how can I best exalt my employees as a testimony to the character of God? How can I pull them up and raise them to a place of honor? How do you honor your employees? Every day, how do you do that? If you're an employee, ask this question, how can I best order my work life as a testimony of Christ and the gospel? Our work matters. And if we're going to have a testimony that's going to draw many to salvation, our work matters. We have to live it out when we're on the job, whether we're managers or whether we're employees. Now, I tacked this one on. It's not in Ephesians, but it is the same word of submission in 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13. How do we order our lives as believers under government? Under government. That applies to us all because we are all in a country that has government. And we're all living in a state that has government. We're all living in a city that has government. So how do we order our lives well? Willingly, consistently, actively. In order to lift them up. What? You want me to lift up Joe Biden? I can't do it. God didn't say lift them up if they're good. He said lift them up. Okay, I agree with very little that Joe Biden has done. I have my concerns about our president. But I can still lift him up. I can still willingly, consistently order my life that I'm not tearing him down, that I'm not slandering him, that I'm not gossiping about him, that I'm not challenging him in ungodly ways. I can do that even if I don't agree with him. Even if I think, okay, the days are getting darker, man, it's nothing compared to Nero yet. Okay, we haven't seen anything compared to Nero yet. So how do we do that? We got to wrestle with that. Okay, our governor has started to make mask mandates again. I hate masks. Okay, I I don't want any question about that. I hate them. And if our governor says, churches, you will, we will. And if that means you're not coming to church anymore, I'll deal with that. Because we are to order our lives under authority as a testimony. Now, I just said something. A couple of elders are looking at me like we haven't even talked about this. Okay, you can, you can overrule me. I, I order my life under the elders. We'll get into that more next week. But we've got to wrestle through these things. We can't just have flippant answers. We can't just dismiss. We have to work through these things in a way that we can do it with consistency. Because our testimony is at stake. Let's pray. Father God, I have gone way too long. And so, Lord, I thank you for the patient endurance of these people.